Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to The Invisible Men podcast. I am Ian Rowe, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, uh, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And thank you for joining us. You know, as you know, the Invisible Men podcast is all about celebrating black excellence, uh, uplifting, amazing uh, people that you may not have heard of, but we are determined to make invisible no more. And we are really excited uh, to uh, have joined with us today Gervais Warner, uh, someone Nike you and I have known for a long time. Uh, Gervais actually is in Trinidad right now, uh, and he will he will explain why in a second. But Gervais, you are one of the amazing uh, men that we've wanted to highlight because of what you have done both in your professional and your personal life. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and the great company that you have helped to build? Oh, wow. Well, I have to say, Ian and Nike, it is such a pleasure to be reunited with the two of you in this context. Uh, my life has been a, such a journey since we left business school that just to reestablish some contact and continue this message of hope and inspiration that I think was a big part of what we did and what we, the conversations we had while we were at business school is really so, so joyful and heart-filling. So thank you for this opportunity so much. I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> so, gents, since uh, we left business school, uh, as you guys know, I, I spent time at, at uh, McKinsey & Company in New Jersey, then in Florida, then I joined the Caracas office to do work with clients in the Caribbean. And I, I like to tell this story because I think it's, it, 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 it's kind of instructive. Uh, when, when, I, when I decided to leave McKinsey, it was because uh, my daughter had just turned 10. Her, her, her birthday was the 14th of December, so it was right in that holiday period. And I realized that with all the traveling I was doing, I was going to miss out on being able to do homework with her and some of the best years that we would have together. And she would turn 18, go off to college, and I would not have had the experience of being a father the way that I would like to be a father. And so that Christmas vacation, I decided I was going to leave McKinsey. I'd been a partner there, was there 11 years, and had, a, I think, a, a, a promising future ahead of me. And um, decided with my wife that, no, uh, we're going to really plant our roots in, in the Caribbean. And I started a job search, and I told my friends at McKinsey I was going to leave in six months, and, and that I did. And it was a wonderful experience, and I joined this company called Neil and Massey at the time. And Neil and Massey is a traditional conglomerate from the Caribbean, one of the largest uh, conglomerates in the Caribbean. Uh, I had done a little piece of work with them while I was a consultant, but I really loved the CEO, then, then CEO, Bernard Dulal White. He was just a fantastic leader, wonderful gentleman. Uh, and I, I, I really loved his team. He had a great team of people who were, you know, full of integrity, professional, and, um, you know, the kind of familial kind of sentiment to, the, to this business. But anyway, I joined, I, I joined in, in, in 2004, and I've been the CEO of, of, of the Massey Group since uh, 2009. 
so that's that's what I, that's what I'm, I'm I'm doing there, and it's been a an amazing amazing ride. You know, um, guys, since we've been together, my journey has taken me to reflect on you know what it really took to be a great leader. And uh, even while at McKinsey, I, I realized that it was so important to be coached and to listen and to be able to take advice and seek out mentorship and to really not defend the feedback. <laughs> and uh, that led me to this pursuit that has me lead a company whose purpose is to be a force for good, creating value, transforming life. And so what we're up to is really creating a force for good for our people, for our country, for the Caribbean, and for the planet. We are literally transforming the world to be a place where people have the experience of being able to live their best lives, being able to be part of something that is good, that does the right thing all the time. And that's what we've been doing. And I, I, what, what, what's been very fortunate is that this mammoth of a conglomerate that we now you know, have the opportunity to lead has been a fantastic vehicle for uh, that message. And uh, we can demonstrate that you, know, you, you don't have to be mean and nasty to actually uh, grow and, um, and, and produce great financial results. You actually can uh, be a great company and a force for good in this, on this planet. And uh, you know, I think particularly at this time where there's so many examples of the opposite and the insistence of the opposite, uh, you know, I think it's just really, really important. Uh, it's, it's, it's my purpose and why, we, why we're doing what we're doing. Why, why do you think it is that people seem to be so attractive to the, to the opposite, to the negative, when what you just said is so inspiring? You know, I, 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 I don't know that people are attracted to it. I think that people feel that that's how they have to be. I can tell you, whenever we recruit, it's, it's actually people are kind of like drawn to our company, like moths to flame, because there's that sense of they can be themselves and they could be great people and great professionals and whatever skill set they're bringing but just happy to be in a place where they can be appreciated, where they can grow, where they can speak truth to power and stuff like that. And, and un unfortunately, you know, bullying is still quite popular and it's even more popular today than it's ever been before. And uh, I, I think particularly because the leadership you have in the United States of America at this point in time, you don't mind me saying on your podcast. <laughs> uh, but you know, some people feel like, okay, well, I don't have a choice. I have to live in that environment and I have to survive that environment. And really, I don't think that people are, given the choice, people will always choose truth, light, integrity, respect, honor, appreciation. But a lot of people live in that that doesn't work. That, that you know, that's fantasy. And, you know, if you want to get ahead, you got to be in this tree. You know, look, look at all those guys driving the fancy cars, living in the great apartments, 
they're in the slipstream of the mean and nasty, and that's how that's where we gotta be to get through. And I think that's a false message. That's a empty, hollow vessel. Gervais, some of those beautiful words that you just articulated, have they have they always been a part of who you are? Or were there periods in your life where you embraced more strongly to, to some of those words and, and some of those values? Yeah, Q, this is a really good question because I, I, I say to people that I grew up in a command and control hmm. authoritarian um, home <laughs> as well as, um, you know, management style. And so this transformation that we are uh, pursuing at our group, Massey Group in Trinidad, is a, is a transformation. And, and the structures at, at, at the Massey Group are all colonial structures, right? Mm -hmm. So it really is command and control. And I say, you do, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I, 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 took, I took licks from, from uh, for many, many years. Now it's my turn to give licks. <laughs> 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 so, 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 yeah, it hasn't always been that way. And I can say that I haven't always been that way. And I, I, I know that, you know, there's a place where I, I, I have a lot of fight within. You know, I was competitive. I played sport. And, um, yeah, and I had a tantrum, too, <laughs> as a kid, right? So, so, no, I haven't always been this way. But, you know, through a lot of work with different coaches and programs, you sort of chip away at what's not you. So all that stuff, I get to be able to appreciate that's not me. That's how I learned to survive in situations I perceived as dangerous or potentially harmful to me. And I built up this armor of different ways to react that allowed me to win. And it's been a long journey of chipping away at that stuff and, you know, actually putting it down and being able to see what a beautiful life arises when I am not run by those automatic behaviors that were formed over you know, many, many years in my life. So, so Gervais, you have a very interesting vantage point, uh, being a leader uh, in Trinidad, in the Caribbean, and, and you're watching what's happening in the United States, particularly in the black community. One thing that's very interesting is recent immigrants to the United States from the Caribbean or through countries throughout Africa tend to do much better economically and in other ways when they come to the United States. And yet they face the same kind of racial discrimination. What do you think it is that, that, that makes that difference uh, in terms of some of the values that you're um, that you're talking about, uh, it's another great question. Of course, I live the experience here, and I, I don't think it's just recent. I think that that's been true um, for a very long time. But you know, I don't think that our story as immigrants, because I would say that I was an immigrant at one point, and I just chose to come back to Trinidad. But I could have stayed in the United States and 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 been you know a uh, uh, Caribbean American and have kids like my my brother has. I think immigrants come with a particular hunger. And when we leave our countries, um, we leave because we're, we're seeking something better, whether it is education, whether it is jobs, whether it is the potential to earn and, and, and uh, uh, you know, sort of send money back. You know, if you like, there's, a, there's almost like a self-selection of the people who leave the comfort of their 
because I mean, it's, it's really comfortable in the Caribbean. I mean, sunshine, <laughs> music. I mean, you know, people are you know having a little drink here. In some countries now, marijuana is legal. You know, it 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 it, it really is nice. You know, and the people that you know, the family you grew up with, friends from school. People don't just leave that and say, I'm going to go to this other country, you know, um, and, and, and try to make it on my own. So I think that one, first of all, you have a self-selection bias that people come in hungry. I think the second thing is, quite honestly, I, I encountered this. I, I, I learned what it was to be an African-American. Because like, when I came to the United States, there was this thing that, that I did not have that black Americans had. And I had to spend years appreciating it because, yeah, you know, we have racial divide in Trinidad between blacks and, and, and East Indians and, you know, we have class divide, etc. But there has been a constant sort of submission of blacks in the United States of America. It's been a grind that continues up until today. And, and we, we didn't experience that coming from the Caribbean. I come from a country where the prime minister was black and have black lawyers and my teachers were black. And, you know, there are a few black people. And there were lots of role models I could look around and see that never had me feel that I couldn't accomplish something because of the color of my skin, you know. And I didn't, I had lots of different friends, you know, from different races and that sort of stuff. I didn't feel like... The only people who understand who I am are other black people. You know, I, I didn't have that. So I arrived on campus at the University of Pennsylvania and um, I, was, I was confused. I didn't know why all the blacks hung out together. I didn't know why people were telling me hello and they didn't know who I was. <laughs> I, I didn't understand this. I really was like a country boy from the, from the Caribbean, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, it didn't take long for me to begin to appreciate because you could start to see the um, discrimination that was now targeted against me. And I'm like, listen, I'm from Trinidad, my way, but, but, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, I think so it's two things. That one, we, we, don't, we don't carry, if you like, any, that same legacy of, you know, I'm not good enough or I have somebody's against me. I had to learn the police didn't like black people. You know, I didn't assume that when I arrived. But ask any black American child, they know the police don't like them, right? Uh, and so, so, so it's different. You come in with a certain level of, you know, you know I don't know, I, I, idealism. You, you think that you can make it because, you know, you've seen it on TV. You um, come in with a certain level of hunger. And you certainly come in with a, a, certain, a different level of self-esteem about who you are. And... Um, you know, that, that it hasn't been disrupted by hundreds of years of, yeah. of, 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 you know, being repressed and oppressed. So I, of, that's what I've learned from my experience. <laughs> lots of powerful things said there. Lots of, lots of things that certainly resonate with me. I, your reference to people saying hello to you and you don't know them, right? You, you eventually learn to give that nod to every... Yes, sir. You know, <laughs> <is> that, <laughs> that nod that we all, we all can appreciate. You know, I, I want to make sure, and I'm, I'm sort of changing gears a little bit, but I think it's an important part of your narrative. You know, I had the pleasure of, of uh, watching and listening to your TED Talk from a few years ago. And I just want to make sure our audience is kind of made aware of that and you can just talk a little bit about 
the story and the context and the purpose of that talk, I think that'd be great. Sure. So I think the, the TED talk is now mislabeled. It says uh, uh, how to forgive a politician. It really wasn't about a politician. Um, the genesis of doing that TED talk was because while I was happy to return to the country in which I grew up, uh, our crime rate has been quite terrible. And um, we were the victims of a home invasion. A guy came in and put a gun to my daughter's head and robbed us. You know, we were all safe, etc. But it certainly did lead to, lead to a deep level of introspection about the choice to come back to Trinidad and what I remembered about the country and um, what I thought about myself and the fact that, you know, I had so much resentment for this person who had invaded us and, um, you know, really, really, you know, stole something more than the valuable, stole, stole, stole a sense of, of security, uh, a sense of, 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 of my own ability as a man to protect my family and stuff like that. So um, the TED Talk was really weaving the whole idea of growing up in an idyllic kind of lovely country where, you know, we all knew one another and then we have what we have today and um, race-based politics and what that does to set up real resentment against people. And um, through this journey of preparing for this TED Talk, I was actually asked by someone um, who was perfectly capable of executing the offer, whether, you know, if they found this person, whether, you know, I thought that, you know, I would want that person killed. Um, and wow. I, I, had, I had this um, reflection that, you know, you know I, I actually didn't answer the question when I was asked because I, I was so burning with... Um, you know, uh, upset. But where I eventually got to was at the end of the TED talk, forgiving that person, right? And, um, you know, I think, you know, forgiving someone who has violated you that much is a very important theme for politics because a lot of politics um, have, certainly in Trinidad, this history of who did what to whom and a history of, 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 of abuse or uh, perceived abuses and um, uh, uh, discrimination. And if you're unable to find that place where you can forgive almost even the worst of atrocities, then you don't have a place from which to really begin dialogue for a future. So that was the context of my TED talk. I, I still think it's very relevant to a lot of subjects in the world right now. And, um, it, but it, it is personal, you know, you, it, it, you can say that and it's, it's kind of academic. Um, but I could tell you, I, I got a lot of release and, um, freedom in my life by going through the experience of preparing for that TED talk and being able to get to that place where I could genuinely say that, you know, I forgave that guy for what he did. There. Wow. How do you develop that capacity to forgive? I actually didn't know that. I can't believe I didn't know that story. Yeah. How do you develop that capacity to forgive? Um, I don't know, Ian. I, I think if you dwell on it long enough, you realize how much, how much it, it, it eats you. So I think that when I was asked that question, I could see that the side of me that wanted revenge was scary and that, you know, I think that if you 
are committed to, and if you love, you know, it, it, it's very hard to, and I think a slippery slope to embrace that side that might want to say, you know, I'm going to hold on to this. Because particularly if you hold on to it, life doesn't get better, it gets worse. You know, you, you're replaying it in your mind and you're wondering that you should do that and you're starting to wish terrible thoughts upon that person. And that's the energy you're putting out in the world. And that's the energy you become. And that doesn't help you. Well said. Well said. Yeah, I'm thinking of a situation in my, my own life. And uh, you're right. It just, you stay in that ugly place thinking about what you want to do. And yeah, it's, it's uh, wow. Well, and I know we're, we're moving along. So we have a segment of our, of our video series. We call it the speed round. And I'm uh, going to give you some names and just want you to, to tell me who, who you sort of embrace more and why. So we'll, we'll start with an easy one. Martin Luther King or Malcolm X? Definitely Martin. Martin's one of my heroes. Definitely a role model for me. Why? Um, I mean, I, I, this, I, I, love, I love what he stood for in terms of, um, you know, conquering through peace and the strength that it took uh, to remain peaceful while people were still abusing him. Uh, amazing, amazing. That's why they had to kill him. His message was unconquerable. I mean, talk about take the high road and, you know, it's unconquerable. Now, you, you know, Brother Malcolm's dad was from the Caribbean. <laughs> you'll see that. You'll see that answer another question differently. <laughs> well, all right. Well, let's, let's go there then. We've, we've got the Honorable Mr. Garvey or Du Bois. See, I like Garvey now, man. <laughs> Garvey <from> Jamaica. <laughs> uh, and to me, more down to earth. Mm -hmm. That's right. With the people. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, two, two, two sort of philosophies, economic development or civil rights, which is more important? Ooh, 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 ooh. Can you have one without the other? Hmm. I mean, so, I, you know, if I, if, I, if I say, you know, um, different countries probably weighted differently here in Trinidad, economic development, United States of America, civil rights, hmm. you know, more important. I think kind of depends upon your stage of development. Uh, but I really don't think you can truly have, fully have, you know, full civil rights without economic development because, you know, you take the United States where you have so many people who are marginalized. They really don't have civil rights by virtue of the development of the economies in which their existence is based. And I, my last question, and I think Ian will close this out. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I think about the boys now when I think about you, because almost this dual reality that you've been able to live, you know, raised, born and bred and fed on the Caribbean culture, but then having lived in America and been educated in America for so long, you, you in fact understand both. And I wonder to what degree have some of the American values and sensibilities and education that you 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 secured. How much of that do you still touch upon in in your day to day activities as the CEO of a of a global enterprise? Oh, a tremendous amount. A tremendous amount. So, 
I, I think a lot of who I am professionally around, um, you know, I would say the, the aspiration of the company for greatness around you know, focus on growth, uh, focus on developing people, focus on making contributions. You know, these are not conversations that you will hear a lot in the Caribbean. I would say that we are real pioneers in the Caribbean in those types of conversations. I still maintain a lot of contact with people from McKinsey, still well-read, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You'll hear a lot more uh, uh, companies in, in, in the United States speaking of those things. You know, I was, I was amused when um, I saw that the uh, CEO roundtable had arrived at this uh, idea that businesses must have a purpose. And the purpose was not to just to make money. I was like, oh, yeah, it's nice. You know, we arrived at that 10 years ago. Nice, nice to see you around people catch up with it. <laughs> you know, I have to say one last thing. As you were talking, Gervais, it reminded me of one of our classmates, Hiroshi Mikitani, you know, who you know, yeah. has been very successful in Japan. But what has he done? He has taken a lot of free enterprise principles of America and and firmly grafted them to the culture of his Japanese company. Whereas I'm sure you know, English is a required language in the company. Yes. Fascinating what you say as, as you run your company. Very Yeah, good. yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Gervais, um, yeah, you know, one, one connection point, you know, my, my family is from Jamaica and I remember um, when I was growing up, my dad who grew up in Jamaica used to say when he was in Jamaica, he was a man. He was a man. It wasn't until he came to the United States where he realized, I'm a black man. Yes. It was always, it was always struck yes. as very profound. Yes. 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 This, yes. this yes. part yes. of his yes. identity was so much more pronounced. And he never understood it. It took him a long time. And frankly, in many ways, he tried to instill in me never to solely see myself as a black person in this country as opposed to seeing my own core humanity first and to see that in other people, most importantly, to see it in other people. So it's a, it's a, it's a profound that you said that was a, that was a, uh, a big transition for you. So Gervais, you know, cause you were part of the team almost 30 years ago when, when Nike and I came up with this uh, crazy idea to create this video project way back when the invisible men, where we got, different Harvard graduate school men to talk to and give advice to Daryl, the 16-year-old yes. imaginary young man, black man, black teenager, living in forgotten USA, this imaginary urban city. And Daryl was facing a whole host of challenges that you can imagine. And 30 years later, while there has been enormous progress on many fronts, there's still a lot of Daryls out there. And, you know, as we close, just want to tap your brain. If you had Daryl in front of you or in, in the thousands of Daryls, what would you tell him? What kind of advice would you give? I remember 28 years ago, I told Daryl that education was the key to success and that absolutely the way proven, tried and proven way out of um, you know, poverty, out of discrimination, out of, um, you know, being, being downtrodden is a focus on education. I 
think that that's true, but I would expand that today. 28 years later, I'd say that 14 years old, you got to be distinctive in this world. Education is a place where you have a very wide variety of subject areas to pick from. But if that's not is what for you, then find, find your passion. Find your music that lives in you, mm. where you are distinctive and truly best, and follow that. Follow that and give everything to it. And there will be people who will make fun of you. There will be people who will discourage you, who will not believe in you. But don't die with that music in you. Find that music. Treat it like a treasure. Let it grow. Nurture it. And become the greatest with that piece of what interests you and you have a passion for. Because that's where you will find true happiness. That's where you will be distinctive at whatever you do. And you will get the reward that you really want that is appropriate for that passion that you have. That would be my, that would be the difference in my counsel to Daryl today. Okay, that's beautiful. <laughs> wow. Well, Gervais, it's so, so good to see you. So good to see you. And thank you for spending time with us and thanking you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thanks, guys. I, uh, I'm, I'm just really, really delighted you were able to do this, man. And uh, I, I hope that this has been, uh, uh, you know, a useful session. And can we, can we just live again on a Friday afternoon? You know, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Let's do this again. <laughs> uh, let's, let's do it again. Absolutely. Let's do it again. Yeah. All right. But, you know, guys, you know, they, 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 I, I'm feeling like we could organize a Zoom reunion. I a think Zoom that's a good idea. Reunion. In fact, you maybe, know what I mean? maybe that's an episode of The Invisible Men. Maybe there's a full reunion of all of us, in fact. Yeah. Oh. I just sent an email to Troy not two weeks ago, and he's doing very well. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, yes. Yeah. All right. All right. We're wrapping deeper episodes here. Well, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of The Invisible Men. We are very excited to be showcasing Black excellence. And Gervais, you very much embody that. So thank you very much. Thank you, my brothers. Thank you, dear brother. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. Bye. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.